This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer. Serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. While the city of Wilmington was barricading itself away from the ravages of yellow fever in the fall of 1862, William Benjamin Gould was planning his escape. The then 24-year-old was born into slavery in Wilmington in 1837, and despite his station in life, had become a literate man and a sought-after local plaster by the time the Civil War broke out. Most notably, He's responsible for much of the beloved plaster work that has come to define the antebellum grandeur of the Bellamy Mansion, a contribution of his that wouldn't be discovered until the 2000s when his initials were found carved in the work he left behind. He was a man with ambition and a keen articulate eye for his surroundings, a skill that would manifest itself in a celebrated diary of his time far from the reaches of the port city as a sailor in the Union Navy. He would go on to have eight children, a strong lineage of soldiers and scholars, and a much-studied legacy predicated on a single choice made on the night of September 21st, 1862. As he and 21 other slaves slipped away in the dead of night, they set out on a daring and dangerous journey to freedom that would first enlist them in the ongoing battle for the soul of the country. Their act of rebellion, a trait well entrenched in the American identity, would also establish William Benjamin Gould as a vital and thoughtful voice for African Americans in the Civil War, a voice that still reverberates today. But it all started that night on the shores of the Cape Fear River when William Benjamin Gould took command of his story and sailed off into history. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures of southeastern North Carolina. I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. This week, we're flipping to a new chapter in our local history book to explore the life of William Benjamin Gould, a celebrated figure in American history, not just for his escape from the clutches of slavery in Wilmington and subsequent service to the Union cause, but also for his persistence in documenting his experience and that of his fellow slaves and freedmen during the war and after. His story is one of perseverance and preservation in a time when the black experience wasn't often given such consideration. As always, I'll share with you his story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend, and then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. And this week, One of our two guests is none other 
than William Benjamin Gould's great-grandson, William Benjamin Gould IV, who has spent decades researching his family's history and published a book on his great-grandfather's diaries, from which you'll hear throughout the episode. So settle in for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed as we chart the courageous and resounding life of William Benjamin Gould and the daring escape from the Orange Street Landing. When William Benjamin Gould returned to Wilmington in 1865, he did so for the first time as a free man. The port city was his birthplace, the stage of his formative years, and the bearer of some of his greatest craftsmanship. But what he found on his return wasn't what he remembered. Writing of the reunion for the Anglo-African, a black abolitionist newspaper, he remarked how the once-bustling Confederate stronghold had become a deserted shell of his memory. He observes that her wharves that used to groan under the millions of barrels and thousands of bales are entirely bare. And the river glides noiselessly by, not a ship there to break the current. But more importantly, he wrote of the positive change he saw as he moved through the city. The slave auction block that once stood at the foot of Market Street was now missing, and the bell that once rang to inform slaves of their 9 p.m. curfew was silent. He saw black citizens were actively engaged with trade and commerce, and they filled schoolrooms. On the whole, he wrote, Wilmington is changed. Change had swept through the fractured country now forced back together, abolishing the institution of slavery under which he was born. In the time of slavery, it was a mother's status, not the race or social standing of the father, that dictated what life her child was born into. William Benjamin Gould was born on November 18, 1837, to Elizabeth Moore, a slave belonging to Nicholas Nixon of Wilmington. His father, Alexander Gould, was a white Englishman who migrated to the United States after the War of 1812 and initially settled in Granville County. Beyond that, not much is known about the man from whom Gould would inherit his last name. Nixon was a peanut farmer and the owner of upwards of 69 slaves in the years prior to the war. His plantation was 12 miles outside Wilmington, but he also owned a downtown house on Chestnut Street, where Gould lived in the slave quarters. It's not known how a young Gould became educated, an opportunity most slaves were not given. Some historians theorize it could have been at St. John's Episcopal Church or Front Street Methodist Church, all within blocks of his home. In Wilmington, Gould established himself as a skilled craftsman and plaster in the first two decades of his life. Nixon knew the value of his slave skills, so he hired him out around town. That was a common practice at the time, and some slaves could even keep a portion of their profits. If they were lucky, they could earn enough to buy their freedom and that of their families. But as the war crept closer, new laws made it even more dangerous to be a slave in the South, let alone one with an eye toward freedom. In 
The few who were free had to wear patches that denoted them as such, in addition to carrying documents that proved their freedom at all times, and bearing the constant burden of suspicion and threat. It was this life that Gould sought to escape, and he was hardly the only slave plotting a way out. If you recall from our first season, Abraham Galloway would escape from his owner in Wilmington in 1857, even before the Civil War began. He would become an abolitionist leader, a Union spy, and eventually a state senator. Although it's never been confirmed that they knew each other in Wilmington, Gould and Galloway's paths would cross in 1864 in New York at a meeting about North Carolina suffrage. After the start of the war, the opportunity for Gould's own escape came on as quickly as a fever. It was decided the best time to make a run for it was while Wilmington was crippled by yellow fever. Normally, a group of slaves wouldn't even be allowed to gather in public or be allowed out after curfew, let alone pile into boats and sail away without anyone taking notice. But as the fever took hold of Wilmington, as we detailed in the premiere episode of this season, the streets became deserted, and more than half the town had fled elsewhere to avoid the virus. As the infection rate grew, the citizens of Wilmington turned inward, out of fear for the outside world, giving the men an unexpected veil of cover for their escape. They gathered at the foot of Orange Street after dark on September 21st, 1862, a night when a steady sheet of rain also did its part to keep them hidden. The landing was just four blocks from the Nixon house Gould lived in. Initially, it was believed he fled with only seven other men, one of whom was George Price, who would go on to represent New Hanover County in the State House of Representatives and Senate during Reconstruction. However, more recent research has found that it was actually 22 men that commandeered three boats that night, a sizable group that made the stealth journey all the more perilous. It was 28 nautical miles from Orange Street to the mouth of the Cape Fear River, where the men planned to seek help from the Union Navy which was operating a blockade President Abraham Lincoln had ordered at the start of the war. Their job was to keep blockade runners from making it to Wilmington with supplies for the Confederacy. As they set out, they took turns at the oars and stuck to the shoreline in order to keep cover in the darkness of the tree line. They floated as silently as they could, past Fort Anderson, Fort Fisher, and Fort Caswell each one another chance for them to be discovered. Communication lines ran from Wilmington to Fort Fisher, so had any of their owners noticed they were missing, a telegraph could have been sent to be on the lookout. But as they inched closer to their destination, nothing came over the wire, at least not in time to send up the alarm. Imagine being in one of those boats, quietly cutting through the darkness and hyper-focused on every sound you heard and every flicker of light you saw. These men weren't just sailing away from something. They were sailing towards something. A new life, a new ownership of oneself, 
a freedom to be your own man, a right we take for granted today. In those boats, it must have been a dreadful kind of purgatory, waiting to see if they were pulled back to the old way of life or allowed to pass through to a new unknown one. Luckily, they made the passage safely and arrived within sight of the USS Cambridge by first light the following morning, Monday, September 22nd. They're spotted by both the Cambridge and the USS State of Georgia just after 8 a.m. Logs for the latter Union vessel show the Cambridge sent men to inspect one of the boats and ultimately brought eight contraband on board. The other two boats of escaped slaves were picked up by other ships. At the time, Union officers referred to rescued slaves and prospective recruits as contraband, or what is considered seized property. Gould's fateful move in September 1862 is often spoken of alongside another event happening several states away. The same day that he steps on board the Cambridge, President Abraham Lincoln convenes his cabinet to present a plan he's been working on for months. Emboldened by the Confederacy's retreat south after the Battle of Antietam the week prior, it was only the night before that he had put the final touches on a draft of the Emancipation Proclamation, which would free more than 3.5 million slaves held by owners in the South beginning January 1st, 1863. The two events, Gould's escape and Lincoln's burgeoning proclamation, are linked by historians because they illustrate that change was coming. But enslaved people like Gould weren't just going to wait around for it. They wanted action, and so they took it themselves. Gould and the other former slaves now on board the Cambridge officially enlisted in the Union Navy on October 3rd, taking what he referred to as the Oath of Allegiance to the government of Uncle Samuel, what he called Uncle Sam. Five days after being brought on board, he writes his first entry in the diary that would come to define his life. It is the only known naval diary written by a former slave. The diary begins on September 27, 1862, with a simple update on his location in Beaufort, North Carolina. Most of his entries are a rundown of the day's duties, observations he made on board, the weather that day, the Confederates they transported to prison, and any scuffles or battles the USS Cambridge engaged in. On board the ship, which served as part of the Northern Atlantic Blockading Squadron, he was initially named First Class Boy, and later promoted to Landsman and Wardroom Steward. Gould might have been a low-ranking member of his ships, but he served with dedication he didn't just want to escape slavery. He believed in the cause the Union was fighting for. It was the holiest of causes, liberty and union, as he called it. His great-grandson, William Benjamin Gould IV, published his surviving diaries in their entirety in 2002 in a book titled Diary of a Contraband, The Civil War Passage of a Black Sailor. They were discovered among the piles of books and loose-leaf papers bequeathed to his father, William Benjamin Gould III, 
when his uncle, Lawrence Gould, died in 1958. The diary's existence was not previously known to the living members of the Gould family, nor was its significance to the historical record of black sailors in the war. Inside the fragile bound book, the edges of the paper have been eaten away by time, and the once bold ink has faded from the page. In it, Gould detailed a day-by-day account of his time in the service. From that first day on September 27th until three years later on September 29th, 1865, when he is honorably discharged from the Charleston Naval Shipyard in Massachusetts. The diaries feature only two extended blind spots in Gould's tour of service. May to October 1863, when he was hospitalized in a Massachusetts naval hospital with the measles, and September 1864 to February 1865, a period of writings thought to be lost before William Benjamin Gould IV and his father were given the diaries. The diaries are notable not only for their insight, but also because they exhibit Gould's stylistic penmanship, his dry wit, and his keen observations. Words are misspelled and some are misused, but the entries provide an undeniably important perspective into the mind and motivations of a former slave in his first days of freedom. As Gould IV notes in his book, the diary isn't written as one would write a personal introspective diary today. Gould holds back on his emotions and instead focuses on the day-to-day life of a sailor in war, giving locations of his ships and the engagements they found themselves in as the war stretched on. This has led some historians to believe that Gould actually wrote them to be read and shared by others, a foresight that only speaks further to his intelligence and forward thinking. But the pages aren't absent of the man behind the pen. At times, he wrote of the longing he felt for his future wife, Cornelia Williams Reed. The two likely met in Wilmington before she was bought out of slavery and moved to Nantucket Island in Massachusetts in 1858. Gould would briefly reunite with Cornelia in Boston on his first leave from the Cambridge in the spring of 1863. During the war, Gould IV estimates that his great-grandfather and great-grandmother exchanged at least 60 letters. It was also in his diary that he revealed the sadness he felt after learning of his mother's death in March 1865. But his blues, as he called them, of missing Cornelia, of losing his mother, and for the slow pace of life on board the Cambridge, were interrupted with the occasional blood-pumping action of locking horns with the Confederacy at sea. His leave in Boston in 1863 is also when he first begins corresponding with the Anglo-African, which provided reporting for black soldiers and sailors serving in the war. He would soon begin contributing articles to the publication under the non de plume, Ali. After he recovers from the measles in October 1863, he was transferred to the USS Niagara, on which he served as it actively chased Confederate cruisers being built by European allies of the South. 
Yes, you heard that correctly. The Civil War wasn't confined to the continental United States. It was a war fought on land and on the far reaches of the European Sea. After three years and one week of service, Gould was discharged on September 29, 1865. It takes him less than three months to marry the love of his life, Cornelia, inside the African Baptist Church in Nantucket. They would go on to have six sons and two daughters. They finally settled in Dedham, Massachusetts in 1871, making them one of only two black families in a town predominantly comprised of Irish and German immigrants. Gould's post-war life was defined by two things, his family and his work. The plastering and masonry skills he learned in Wilmington brought him acclaim and recognition in Dedham, most notably leading the restoration of the town's St. Mary Catholic Church. He was also a founding member of the Episcopal Church of the Good Shepherd and served in the GAR, the Grand Army of the Republic on Veterans Matters even ascending to the title of commander of post-144 in 1900 and 1901. As his sprawling family grew up and had children of their own, Gould's legacy was only strengthened. Like their father before them, all six of his and Cornelia's sons enlisted in the military and served in wars. The oldest, William Benjamin Gould II, fought in the Spanish-American War, while the other five all fault in World War I. A now-famous picture of Gould, surrounded by his six sons, all in their military uniforms, ran in The Crisis, the NAACP's first magazine, in December 1917. Cornelia died on December 21, 1906, at the age of 69. Her husband, after a life that began as someone else's property, and evolved into one of cultural and familial significance, joined her on May 23, 1923. He was 85. At the time of his death, the local newspaper, the Dedham Transcript, led with a story titled, East Dedham Mourns Faithful Soldier, an Always Loyal Citizen. It's possible that the visit to Wilmington in 1865 that he detailed in the Anglo-African, was the last time Gould ever stepped foot in the port city. If that was the case, it must have been a heartening sight to see even some semblance of progress in his hometown. It was the version of Wilmington that Gould desperately sought, and one he knew he couldn't help make a reality from his place as a slave within its borders. Yet with all this change for the worst, he wrote, there is a still greater change for the better. It's that hope for Wilmington and the rest of the country that sent him to the foot of Orange Street that September night in 1862, the first night of the rest of his remarkable life. Joining me now to talk further about William Benjamin Gould's story are two guests, one of which you will have heard before if you've listened to the show. It is local historian Beverly Tetterton, who is not only a guest on the show, but one of the tour guides 
for the Cape Fear Unearthed Walking Tour. Thank you for being here, Beverly. Glad to be here. And joining me in Beverly in this conversation this week is a very special guest, William Benjamin Gould IV, who is the great-grandson of William Benjamin Gould, who we have been talking about this episode. He is a professor emeritus at Stanford Law School in California. He's on the phone with us today, and he's going to be talking about his great-grandfather's legacy. He also told me that he is the fourth of six William Benjamin Goulds that are now a part of this story. So thank you for joining us today, Bill. Thank you. Very nice to be with you, and Beverly, too. And I will start off this conversation by saying that uh, Bill and Beverly know each other very well. They uh, worked on uh, the research process for uh, Bill's book, Diary of a Contraband, The Civil War Passage of a Black Sailor. And so they have uh, worked on the story together for many years and continue to help tell it. There's been development since then that we will get into. So I want to start off this conversation by Tossing it to you, Bill, uh, to talk a little bit about what you knew of uh, William Benjamin Gould when you were growing up, because a lot of the pieces of his story have been found or, or confirmed in recent years uh, through your research or Beverly's research or a number of people who helped you with your book. So what did you learn about him when you were growing up? I'm not sure that I learned too much about him when I was growing up. Uh, this is uh, odd in many respects because... Uh, we used to visit uh, every summer uh, the homes of uh, uh, many of his sons, uh, my great uncles in uh, Dedham, Massachusetts, uh, where they have been since 1871, where my great-grandfather came at the conclusion of the Civil War. I didn't learn um, very much about him until uh, my father discovered uh, the diary itself uh, in Dedham. Uh, when uh, Lawrence Gould, one of William Benjamin Gould's sons, bequeathed his property to my father, and my father went to Dedham and found uh, the diary in the attic, and uh, then uh, began uh, a good many conversations about him. Uh, I had heard some anecdotes uh, about him, I think, around the time of the uh, diary's discovery. Uh, my my father, uh, two of them stick in my mind in particular. Uh, one, uh, uh, my father uh, would tell me how he would watch the parades of the Civil War veterans, including my great-grandfather, go through the streets of Boston. And he would uh, tell me about his contact with other so Civil War veterans. And uh, he always uh, would tell me about one time when uh, one of the veterans called uh, their home, and uh, uh, he said, uh, is Bill Gould there? And uh, my father said, speaking. And the Civil War veteran said, the hell it is. <laughs> and uh, we, always, we always laughed about that, because at that time, there were three William B. Gould living uh, in two houses adjacent to one another, the first one did not die until uh, my father was 23. The other thing that I remember, or 21, the other thing that I remember uh, about William B. Gould is that my father told me fairly early on about the construction work that he had done on the local Roman Catholic Church, uh, St. St. Michael's. And uh, uh, the um, uh, he uh, told me that... Uh, uh, William B. Gould's workmen had 
fallen asleep and the concrete was not set. The plaster was not set as it should be. And so uh, he um, had to go in and tear it all out and do it uh, all over again at great cost to himself. It was the kind of mistake that would not have been known for uh, 20 or 30 uh, years uh, thereafter when uh, there would have been problems uh, with the building. But uh, he wanted it right, and uh, he almost bankrupted himself to, uh, to do this job. And my father said from that moment on, uh, not only did William B. Gould have a great setback uh, economically, professionally in life, but also his name, the name Gould, became uh, one that was uh, almost magical and had great respect uh, in Dedham because people knew what he had done and the cost he had endured to get it right. Wow. And so you, you knew kind of a lot of his life after the Civil War and, and kind of his career and, and the, the name he had made for himself before you learned about any of the things that happened kind of detailed in his diaries and even before here in Wilmington. Certainly before I knew about the details of the diary, I think uh, this was around the time of the discovery of the diary, and it was certainly before uh, uh, Wilmington. We we didn't know very much about William B. Gould, and I remember my mother saying to me that we think he's from uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, but even that was uh, uh, something that was uh, not something that had been uh, discussed very much. And we didn't know whether he was free or slave. Um, uh, and uh, I was a number of years uh, away from my first visit to uh, Wilmington and my first visit and a chance to pursue uh, the research, uh, that part of the research uh, uh, in Wilmington itself with, uh, with Beverly and many of her associates. So what was your first thought of looking in this diary uh, that was given to your father, and obviously you were able to see, uh, was there kind of a spark of immediate interest to dig deeper, or was it something that you kind of set aside and and picked back up later? There was a a spark of immediate uh, interest uh, in it. I I was puzzled by uh, many of the places that he had been, uh, uh, both North Carolina uh, itself. I, I wondered to myself, how can he be, and my father and I talked about this, how can he be in North Carolina, which is part of the Confederacy, during the war, not knowing at the time that the uh, northern uh, military had occupied a good deal of North Carolina in the early part of the war. And I wondered about all of the uh, Spanish cities in particular that he mentioned. I was familiar, as every schoolboy is, with the... Uh, Corsage uh, chasing the Alabama and hunting her down uh, in Sherburg. Uh, but I didn't know about the war uh, of the United States in Europe uh, to pursue uh, uh, vessels that were, that were being built for the Confederacy uh, by uh, many of uh, the European powers. And uh, uh, only that did I begin to uh, dig into much later. I think that as I became familiar with the uh, diary, there were uh, there was one thing that struck me from the very beginning, and that is uh, William B. Gould's understated way of uh, 
writing and uh, uh, his uh, kind of dry wit uh, that he had in many portions of the the book and his eloquence. Uh, Some of this, uh, particularly the understated way of writing, put me in mind immediately of my own uh, father and and uh, I think it was our plan to to bring this out together to to co uh, edit it uh, co uh, write and uh, we began to at that time in the 1960s my father found the diary in 1958 began to try to look for uh, people who uh, who knew people uh, from that period there of course, the generation uh, that had uh, seen my great-grandfather had already been gone for some period of time. But there were still people who knew people. And, of course, uh, uh, we should have systematically interrogated my great-uncles about this. But for some reason, we didn't, even though my mother told me uh, subsequently that my father had... Uh, uh, many uh, conversations or, or a number of conversations with uh, uh, Uncle Lawrence before his death uh, about uh, William B. Gould's service in the war. You know, when you look at his diary entries that are included in your book, and you even in- say this in your opening, they're not kind of a typical diary. They're more observations. They're not really emotional beats about his journey after he leaves Wilmington. They're very much written as something that are intended to be read by others, are intended to be carried on or at least show this journey that he's on for someone other than himself. And I think that's kind of a fascinating duty to even put on himself as he's going about this very unexpected journey. Yes, there are um, there are some expressions of uh, emotion and uh, personal uh, uh, emotion, the uh, he says in late 1862, uh, around Christmas time, that we we all have the blues, and uh, I didn't even know that <clears throat> that expression was used at that time. Um, and we we missed. He said he missed the table uh, that was that would be set at home. Um, and uh, when my great grandmother to be doesn't write him uh, as much as he would like, he says. Uh, Oh, see, when will you write? And uh, <laughs> this sort of thing. But but generally, it's something that is written, I think, with a view towards being uh, read by others. Generally, it's something that uh, uh, is is a, is a a record. He's very careful uh, describing what they're doing and where they're going, uh, and. Uh, uh, providing his observations about uh, the countries and cities that he comes to. Um, uh, and he's also uh, uh, very careful in describing the uh, the treatment uh, that is given to uh, uh, blacks uh, who are uh, on the uh, vessel the vessels that he's on. He never described any uh, discriminatory treatment towards himself. Uh, that's very much like my father also. He kept it within himself and did not speak of this. Now, I want to kind of turn back the clock a little bit from when he's writing the diaries and look at Wilmington and his time in Wilmington. So, Beverly, what would Wilmington have been like for William Benjamin Gould, uh, you know, in those in his whole life? I mean, he was born here and all the way up to kind of 1862 when he does make his 
escape uh, in September 1862. He was owned by Nicholas Nixon, who was the largest slave owner in New Hanover County, except for the railroad. They owned more slaves than Nicholas Nixon. And it was typical for plantation owners to have houses in town. And then so William Benjamin Gould was a town slave, and that's how he learned to be a master plasterer. And Nixon and other slave owners would rent them out. So, you know, he was renting William Benjamin Gould to the Bellamy's to do the plaster at the Bellamy Mansion, and I'm sure he did a lot of other jobs around town too. And so then during the Civil War, the town was, you know, full of people, and as Bill explained, the blockade runners coming and going, and the slaves that lived in Wilmington were town slaves, and they knew how to go all over town. They knew everybody, you know, and so when the yellow fever struck in 1862, anybody that had any money that, you know, or cents that were white, they left Wilmington because people were dying. And this was the perfect opportunity for William Benjamin Gould and the eight that were on his boat, and then there were two other boats. So 22 slaves somehow told each other that they were going to go to the foot of Orange Street, commandeer three, three boats, and sail out. So, yeah, they had this big network where they they talked to each other. If it hadn't been for yellow fever, there's no way they could have taken those boats. Well, and yeah, and as you remember, if you've listened to the yellow fever episode of the podcast, uh, it was described as a ghost town at the time. There was just no one there. So they saw an opportunity and they took it. And it was a daring opportunity, to say the least, to not only take one boat, but three boats, as you've learned, and make their escape kind of in the night. What do we know about so his his life here? There, there's obviously he he wrote a diary, so he was educated, he was literate. Was that rare? You know, and and this could be something both of you can speak to. Was it rare for a slave to be able to find that ed- education? Where did he even get that education? We don't know where he got the education. That Beverly has had, and she probably will speak to this. Some theories about it. We we. Uh, tried to uh, pursue it. I, I, one gentleman who uh, who I think Beverly introduced me to in uh, uh, in the uh, state capitol, uh, uh, Mr. Stevenson, George Stevenson, suggested that uh, his handwriting was very much like uh, the handwriting of the uh, New England missionaries who uh, came to uh, uh, North Carolina in some numbers uh, prior to the war. Uh, he had he has just elegant penmanship, penmanship, as well as uh, um, elegant manner of speaking. But um, we we looked long and hard for the answer for that question and uh, never uh, you know, found the uh, answer. I'd just like to say that if you look at Union diaries um, from Union um, Army who occupied Wilmington. In the diaries, it will they say over and over again that there's an unusual number of freedmen who can read and write. So he wouldn't have been, you know, 
hey, he's the only person, he's the only slave in Wilmington who could read and write. Yeah. It would have been uh, something that a lot of them could do, despite their station. That's true. I, I don't think he is the only one because I think that uh, uh, there are a few others uh, who are similarly situated who uh, with whom he corresponds. Uh, uh, you know, one of the great breakthroughs. Uh, there's so many uh, breakthroughs uh, that we could uh, identify, but one of them is a book that uh, Beverly uh, co-authored, where she identifies uh, many of the leading uh, uh, black uh, uh, blacks in, in the uh, post-Civil War era who are uh, uh, who achieve offices and stature uh, in Reconstruction in uh, times. And it was through that book that I began to um, fill in some of the blanks in my diary. He's corresponding with people always by initials. Um, but I discovered uh, many of the people that he was discovering that he was he was corresponding with uh, by virtue of uh, her book and being able to identify people like George Madsen, who was... Uh, uh, the first uh, black lawyer in North Carolina, and a relative of William B. Gould, uh, George Price, who had uh, state office there, Abraham Galloway, uh, the black scarlet pimpernel of, uh, uh, of the Union uh, Army in North Carolina, so, and with whom William B. Gould meets in New York during the war uh, to discuss black suffrage in North Carolina subsequent to the war. So there is a small group of people that uh, knew one another and that were literate, uh, some of them slaves as well as free. Well, and, and Beverly told me before this that that was intentional to keep the names written in code if you're written, writing them in initials because you didn't want people to see them. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, so I think that... The, well, I was going to say just... But I think that uh, uh, we speculate that if William... William Beagle thought that if he, you know, if the diary was uh, found, lost or found or if he was captured, uh, that uh, he didn't want to identify uh, the people with whom he was in touch, that it could be dangerous for them. Now, in Wilmington, he plays a major role in a very prominent building here in the area, Bellamy Mansion. Uh, and it's become such a big factor of his story here locally. It's even where his historical marker was put up last year, all right out in front of Bellamy Mansion, a very prominent place. Um, he was a plaster in Wilmington, and he worked on uh, the Bellamy Mansion. But you both were working on the research of this book, and uh, you know, even after that was when his contribution to that uh, structure, a very again prominent structure here in Wilmington was discovered. So how did that come about? I mean, I think, Beverly, you you know a lot of the history of this area. Why was it just then that we found out his contribution to Bellamy Mansion? The director of the Bellamy Mansion, Jonathan Nofke, well, when the library published Strength Through Struggle, um, the African-American history of Wilmington, we I had put a little thing about William Benjamin Gould and a photograph of him with his sons, and Jonathan comes running into the library, and he said, oh, my God, look at this. And it was a piece of plaster with W-B-G. And he said, now we know who did it. He signed his work? He signed his work. 
And so, and then we got Bill to verify that that was his signature. So how much of uh, the building process would he have been a part of, do we know? I know George Price was also a master plaster, so I would doubt that he would have done all of it. And George Price was one of the men who, who, who left with him. him yeah. The irony of this, uh, one of the ironies is that uh, uh, on my second visit to, or second or third visit to Wilmington, my first was in 1989, in 1996 or 1997, uh, I've come there in part to attend a conference on the uh, Civil War, and it was being held in the Bellamy Mansion. And uh, I admired the uh, the beauty of the uh, 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 the work that was done on the rooms, and uh, I think I even took uh, a few photos of it at that particular time. And then, subsequent to that, a, a year or so down the road, uh, I got this uh, very excited telephone call from Jonathan Nowski saying. Uh, 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 that uh, they had uh, discovered uh, this plaster with uh, the initials WBG in it. Now, William Benjamin Gould is immortalized in two places here in Wilmington today, one of which is the historical marker outside of Bellamy Mansion, which was, as we mentioned, uh, put up last year. And there's also uh, the monument of sorts, educational monument, really, to him and his escape, really, and his whole life, uh, down by Orange Street. And Beverly, you were involved in kind of securing both of those. The the one at the end of Market Street uh, required a pretty rigorous process to get. What did that require? That was, um, it's called Orange Street Landing. And we got an underground railroad marker, which is given out by the Secretary of Interior. And not only do you have to provide the information, you have to know exactly where they left, which is like for Abraham Galloway, we have no idea. But for William Benjamin Gould, you know, we had all the proof. And so they gave us one and we have been applying for one for Cornelius, his wife. wife, And still, because we know that she was purchased and she was, um, picked up at the railroad station, mm-hmm. which we know exactly where that is. But so far, we haven't been able to get one because I guess they only give so many. Um, and it, I would encourage everyone to go down there and see it because it is very educational. But it's also, as we say on the walking tours that we do, it's kind of a different impact to be standing where you know history was made, specifically this story, which was really a massive turning point in someone's life, someone who you know, was born as someone else's property and or and stayed that way. This was his kind of taking his own uh, life into his hands, historical marker. And, uh, Bill, you came down for the ceremony for the historical marker, correct? Yes, well, I've come down for uh, all of the ceremonies that Beverly, uh, involving uh, uh, things that Beverly has been able to do in uh, uh, 2003, and then I think uh, the second one when the uh, Underground Railroad became involved was around uh, uh, 2008 or nine or t- uh, somewhere in there, and then uh, of course uh, this uh, this marker in front of the Bellamy Mansion uh, this very last fall um, in November. 
Beverly, what's it been like to work on this particular story? I know you are a historian. You were, um, you know, librarian, archivist for the New Hanover County Library. You've worked on many stories. What was it like to work on uh, William Benjamin Gould's story, though? It was fantastic. I mean, the day I met Bill and I helped his students and even once in a while now, I'm, I'll be on a website and I'll start looking up Gould's. I mean, I sort of feel like I'm part of the family. <laughs> I think they would agree with that. <laughs> I, feel, I feel that way, too. Yes. So what is it like to see his story kind of grow over the years? I mean, you, you carry his name now. Uh, you know, your, your father carried his name. Your son carries his name. What's it like to, you know, carry on his legacy? I mean, I imagine you take pride in uh, being able to continue to tell his story. Well, I remember that when I was in my 20s, uh, when this uh, uh, diary was uh, first discovered, my early 20s, uh, that um, immediately uh, this became a great source of strength to me, um, a great uh, uh, source of confidence, uh, because uh, uh, I suddenly was aware of this uh, gentleman who uh, had face such enormous uh, difficulties and hurdles in life uh, and who was able to uh, uh, to uh, uh, write so beautifully to uh, have the courage to escape and to uh, to fight who was able to use a trade to work with his hands and his mind um, well uh, this was uh, an incredible feeling. I had been going up to Dedham as a child all those years um, and talking with his son and uh, one of his daughters uh, without ever knowing this. Uh, and uh, uh, this this uh, has meant uh, a lot to me uh, uh, throughout the years. And I, I continue to get uh, uh, letters. Just I sent Beverly a copy of a letter that I just got a few days ago from a student who came upon this book uh, um, called Diary of a Contraband, the, the Civil War Passage of a Black Sailor. I think of all my books, uh, in many respects, this will be uh, uh, the most lasting, because we all uh, have this yearning to, uh, to know uh, where we come from, how it was that we faced the situation in life that uh, we faced, and... Uh, this is uh, an enormous, uh, gives me a, a great deal of strength and uh, has given me confidence. I've written often about uh, how when I was in Washington, when I was chairman of the National Labor Relations Board, uh, many of the members of Congress, uh, led by uh, Congressman Newt Gingrich and many of the Republicans disproportionately from the South, uh, didn't like the work we were doing at all. And I had a very difficult time. And uh, many a night in my condominium in Washington, I would reread that diary uh, and think about the fact that he was facing real, uh, real bullets. Uh, as he talks about Johnny Reb knows what he was doing and, and uh, talks about uh, some of the bullets uh, coming from uh, Confederate uh, ships that were a bit too uh, close for comfort. And to think uh, that this man had such uh, courage and sang-froid uh, that uh, uh, the work that I was doing was uh, trivial 
in connection with his, and that uh, I said to myself, surely I have the uh, uh, the ability to see this through. If he has the ability to see through uh, a much more difficult challenge, I can only imagine just reading those words. I mean, they resonate so well, even reading them now when you read them in your book. Um, it's just kind of a really interesting way to place yourself in what is such a foreign idea to us today. Well, uh, thank you so much for sharing this process with us and uh, and letting us hear about your you know memories of him and your work to you know continue his story and uh, thank you so much for being here and thank you so much Beverly as always for being here. Um, I would encourage everyone to read Diary of a Contraband. It is a fascinating book and to hear both uh, Bill's kind of observations of the diary and also read the diary for yourself uh, are a fascinating com- uh, combination. And so uh, thank you both for being part of the episode on William Benjamin Gould. That's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and the story of William Benjamin Gould. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll be back next Thursday to share a new chapter from our local history book. Until then, be sure to share your thoughts on the show on Twitter with the hashtag CF Unearthed. Or you can email me at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. Also, please make sure you're a member of our Facebook group where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each episode. And this week, I'll be sharing stories of William Benjamin Gould and his family through the years, including pages from his diaries. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com and on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing is done by Adam Fish. This Star News Media podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Also, sign up for our weekly newsletter to have each week's episode, pictures, and more sent right to your inbox every Thursday. Sign up now at starnewsonline.com newsletters. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. What you learn might just surprise you. Yeah.